Judea, around Jerusalem, Judea, even beyond the Jordan. And curious and desperate multitudes were following him. In fact, by the close of Jesus' earthly ministry, disease had all been eliminated in the land of Palestine, at least for a brief period of time. And now we come to chapters 8 and 9 in the Gospel of Matthew as we continue to make our way through this Gospel. And Matthew, under divine inspiration, records in details in chapters 8 and 9 a series of nine miracles out of all of the thousands that he had performed, nine of them are here recorded. They are found in three groups of three, by the way. And we will also see not only the miracles, but the fascinating and devastating response of the unbelieving Jews. In these chapters, we will read of Jesus' supernatural abilities to cleanse a leper, Heal two paralytics, eliminate a fever, calm a storm, cast out demons, raise a girl from the dead, give sight to two blind men, restore speech to a man made dumb by demons, and heal a myriad of other diseases. We're in for a fascinating journey. Before we look at the text, we might ask, wonder why such detail? Why are these specific historical accounts of Jesus' miraculous power over disease so important? Well, might I remind you that the whole focus of the Gospel of Matthew is to present Jesus as the sovereign king. Mark will present him, the Gospel of Mark will present him as the suffering servant, Luke as the son of man, And John as the son of God. But Matthew's emphasis will be on Jesus as the sovereign king. You might recall that Jesus is presented in Matthew's gospel as the Messiah. His genealogy at the beginning of the book established his legal qualifications. His birth and his infancy required and fulfilled uh, or, or was fulfilled And the the prophetic qualifications were fulfilled in his birth and in his infancy. And the father's acknowledgement of him as his own son at his baptism attested to his divine qualifications and his holy resistance to Satan's temptations in the wilderness really confirmed his spiritual qualifications. Then we've seen in his sermon on the Mount that his sacred teachings really assert his theological qualifications, and now the awesome power of his miracles bear witness to yet another qualification, and that is that he is indeed the very Son of God. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. Now, what is fascinating, and I want you to understand this before we begin to move on, our Lord's ministry is in transition here. From him ministering primarily to the Jews, now beginning to minister to the Gentiles. The Jews continue to harden their hearts as we look at the Gospels against Jesus. Despite all that they witness, all that they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And as a result now, Jesus begins to speak in parables where he deliberately confuses the unbelieving Jews who have now hardened their hearts. And parables actually become 
uh, an act of divine judgment where he judicially seals them in their unbelief. And as this begins to occur, we see the emergence of the Gentile church. Now, this was an inconceivable insult to the Jews who were quite certain that the kingdom of God belonged to them and them alone. Because after all, they were the sons of Abraham. Because of their racial descent, they perceived that they were the only ones that God would somehow bless. They perceived Gentiles to be unclean and destined for eternal judgment and saw themselves as the chosen people and therefore the sole recipients of divine blessing simply because they were the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he has really exposed the folly of their hypocrisy and the penetrating light of the gospel of Christ has utterly annihilated their apostate system of, of legalism and self-righteousness. And, and now the Jews are mad. All right. They are mad. They are upset, especially the scribes and the Pharisees who fear that they're losing power. And if you lose power, you begin to lose money. And so they've got to do something with this Jesus. So it's very important for you to understand before we even look at the text that Jesus now is going to be doing these miracles to really prove his deity and prove his messiahship, not only to the unbelieving Jews. And of course, some began to believe, but also to the Gentiles. We read, for example, in John five thirty six, the Lord says, the works which the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. Now, before we embark upon a study of Jesus miracles, before we even examine the text this morning in Matthew eight, really, we're going to be looking at only verses one through four this morning. But I think it's very important for us to clarify some issues concerning healing and other miracles that we hear talked about in our day. And I'm going to just give you some high points, but I really want to set the stage here to make sure there's no misunderstanding. As you know, we live in a day of deception and a day of deceivers. It's staggering the claims of faith healers. And others who claim that God speaks directly to them and that somehow they speak back to us the words of God in prophecies and visions and in the gift of tongues, special prayer languages and so on. And it's tragic that there's such confusion in the body of Christ today, such division. Well, the truth is what we find in Scripture is that there are three categories of spiritual gifts First of all, we know that there are gifted men that God has given the church. Ephesians 4 and other passages talk about that. There you will read about apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers and teachers. And these gifts are described as being given from Christ to his church. Second, there will be found in Scripture the permanent edifying gifts of Scripture. The equipping gifts of Scripture in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, you will read of them. And they would include knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, which, by the way, is authoritative preaching, teaching, exhortation, faith, or really prayer, discernment, showing mercy, giving, administration, and helps. 
But there is also a third category of gift that we read about in Scripture, and that would be what we would call the temporary sign gifts. Now, these would be specific enablements given to certain believers for the purpose of authenticating or or confirming God's word when it was first proclaimed in the early church before the scriptures were actually written. These temporary sign gifts would include prophecy, which would be revelatory prophecy that, that God is actually speaking through an individual miracles, healings, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Now, it's important for me to, as, as a footnote, tell you that tongues in the New Testament was simply the supernatural ability that God gave to certain people to speak divine truth in a foreign language unknown to the speaker so that the gospel could be heard by everyone in their own tongue. This is made very, very clear in, in Acts 2 in particular. This is not at all the ecstatic utterances that you hear about today. The emotional uh, gibberish commonly found in Pentecostal circles, charismatic circles, and also, by the way, various cults around the world and many pagan religions. Sometimes it's known as glossolalia, glossolalia, I should say, which would be defined as incomprehensible speech uh, in some imaginary language, sometimes occurring in a state of trance or some transit state and or or in some episode of religious ecstasy. By the way, we even see it in the disease of schizophrenia. That's not what what tongues is all about. Now, again, the purpose of the temporary sign gifts, and I really want you to understand this, was to authenticate both the message and the messenger to give the apostles and some of their associates the necessary credentials that indeed they spoke the truth of God. And once the word was inscripturated, once the, the canon of divine revelation was closed, the sign gifts no longer had a purpose and they ceased. That's why, by the way, you will see a very different listing of gifts uh, with respect to the temporary sign gifts in Romans 12 versus versus first Corinthians 12, because by the time Romans was written, the church had already been fairly well established and those gifts began to cease. Now, the question might come up then with respect to healing specifically. Does does God still still heal? Well, absolutely he does, but not in the way that he did in the days when the church was first being established. And certainly not in any way like the methods that we see with modern faith healers. In fact, if you look at the way Jesus healed and the way the apostles healed, you will see that, first of all, they could heal at will. Unlike faith healers who blame their ineffectiveness with some on the lack of faith of that particular person seeking the healing. Jesus and the apostles would heal everyone that came their way. Unlike modern faith healers, there were no long lines of disappointed, heartbroken, disconsolate, desperate people who are now shattered because somehow God had failed them or maybe they had failed God. Jesus and the apostles would heal without a word or sometimes with just a touch. No theatrics were needed. No special environment was needed. They didn't need some special tent or some special church or some special tabernacle or a television studio. Jesus and the apostles healed instantly, not progressively. None of this. Well, you know what? 
I think I'm beginning to feel better. Oh, yes, well, you just give it time and you will see. None of that. They were healed totally, not partially. And also we see that Jesus and the apostles healed even organic diseases, not merely lower back pain and the ringing in the ears and heart palpitations or other invisible infirmities. His healings were obviously miraculous. And all that observed them knew that. By the way, there is not one shred of evidence to support any of the claims down through history of any of the faith healers. That somehow they did this on their own through some special gift. In fact, Jesus and the apostles, as we will see, healed leprous skins. Withered limbs were restored suddenly and perfectly. Blind eyes could suddenly see. Violent shaking suddenly stopped. Crippled legs were suddenly strong and healthy. These people were undeniably healed. Not only that, they actually raised the dead. Even as they were walking about, they could raise the dead. Now, indeed, as a result of prayer and because God wants to reveal his glory, he occasionally and supernaturally, sometimes even dramatically, heals people today. But certainly that's not the norm. But when he does that, it's not or when healing occurs, it's not because some faith healer exercised his or her supposed supernatural gift. Now, inevitably, charismatics will respond to biblical and theological refutations of their positions by appealing to experience to validate their truth claims. In fact, if you will notice them on television after they've made their appeal and made their decrees and done everything in Jesus name and had everybody do whatever ritual thing they have to go through to get their healing or whatever, then you will notice the camera will eventually pan to their desk where they will have thousands of letters of people's testimonies of how God has um, healed them or given them great wealth because they planted their seed faith money or whatever. And many times people will will say, well, OK, um, then how do you explain my mother who was healed from her cancer or so and so that was healed from their back pain when they went to see uh, Benny Hinn or the chronic headaches or the pain of arthritis or whatever? Um, John MacArthur, in his very excellent little book, uh, Charismatic Chaos, I would recommend you get that and, and read that. It's good to have in your library. He gives an excellent answer to this kind of reasoning. I want to give it to you. And I quote, since no charismatic healer can come up with genuinely verifiable cases of instant healing involving organic disease, since no charismatic healer heals everyone who comes for healing and hundreds go away from their services as sick or as crippled as when they came, since no charismatic healer raises the dead, since the word of God needs no confirmation outside itself and is sufficient to show the way of salvation, since charismatic healings are based on a questionable theology of the atonement and salvation, since charismatic writers and teachers appear to disallow God his own purposes in allowing people to be sick, since charismatic healers seem to need their own special environment, since the evidence they bring forth to prove healing is often weak, unsupported and over exaggerated, since charismatics are not known for going into hospitals to heal, though there are plenty of faithful people in hospitals. Since most instances of healing by charismatics can be explained in ways other than God's unquestioned supernatural intervention, 
since charismatics get sick and die like everyone else, since so much confusion and contradiction surrounds what is happening. Let me ask the the question in return. How do you explain it? It certainly is not the biblical form of healing. End quote. So bottom line, dear friends, the sign gifts were given to validate both the message and the messenger, and they ceased once divine revelation was inscripturated. And especially with respect to the miraculous gift of healing demonstrated by Jesus and the apostles. And I really want you to understand this. It was never given to just keep Christians from being sick. Or raising us from the dead. But it was to be a sign to unbelievers that the gospel of Jesus Christ was in fact divine truth. So here we discover in the text before us the first set of three miracles that prove his deity and his messiahship. And as we examine them, I I must confess that I'm struck with a number of fascinating insights into the character and purposes of God. But one Marvelous characteristic of Jesus that really just jumps out at me is the observation not only that focuses on Jesus' power, but his love and his compassion for people who were in desperate physical need. We will see that Jesus had pity on the most pitiful and heart-wrenching condition of the human experience, physical disease. Nancy and I went to Baptist Hospital this last Friday, actually, to visit some friends and friends of my parents. And the dear lady is in the very last stages of cancer. And it, it was such a such a difficult thing. It always is when you go and you try to bring comfort. Uh, fortunately, they, she and her husband that was there are believers. But what a sad thing. You know, your heart just breaks as you see that condition. She has merely days to live. And, you know, I uh, I I. Often think about that when I'm in those hospital rooms. I thought I, th- I thought to myself, boy, if there was one gift that I wish was still in place today, it'd be the gift of healing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to just do whatever? But you know that was never God's purpose. God's purposes are far beyond just that. So what we see here is that the Lord chooses to minister to people with desperate physical conditions. But might I also point out as we prepare to look at the text here that he did not go to the Jewish elite. He did not go to the top upper echelons of the society, to the nobility of the Romans or even of the Jews, but he went to the most despicable the most defiled according to the society and those people that everyone would think would be the most absolutely the most undeserving of God's blessing. In this first section of three, he went to a leper, a Gentile soldier's slave and to a woman. Can you imagine that? In the Jewish culture, these people were all social outcasts. They were all the lowest of the low. And isn't it just like our dear Lord? Today, I want to focus primarily on Jesus healing the leper as we 
endeavor to understand some marvelous things about our precious Lord. Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Leprosy was one of the most feared of all of the ancient diseases, for reasons that you will soon understand. Leprous literally means scaly, which describes the most obvious symptom of this dreadful disease, known in our modern day as Hansen's disease. Leprosy bacillus, the technical name, actually myrobacterium, they call it, of which, uh, interestingly enough, about 90% of the population is immune to today. But in those days, and even today, when it exi- where it exists, it begins with pain in the limbs, and then rough and scaly patches begin to show up on the skin. And eventually, as it progresses, it causes hideous disfigurement. But in the eruptive stage of leprosy, rubbery, spongy-type tumors gradually swell and cover the face and the body. And eventually, the bacillus enters the bloodstream. And once it's systemic, then it begins to grow on the internal organs and begins to cause tumors and disease to spread throughout the inward parts of the body. Bones begin to deteriorate. The victims become weak and very susceptible to other diseases, especially tuberculosis in that day. Perforating ulcers would often form on limbs, especially on the feet and hands, fingers. And typically, it would cause such decay that For example, a foot would eventually just fall off and leave only a stump. Flesh and limbs would literally rot off a person's body. And the interesting thing is that it would often do so painlessly, which makes the disease even more cruel. Because you see, when the nerves are numb, an individual can feel no pain and there's no warning system. To warn against fire, against stepping on nails or whatever. And once they become oblivious to injury, their bodies would further be destroyed through just the natural course of trying to eke out a living as they lived typically isolated alone. Many times the insects and even the vermin, such as rats, would chew on them at night and they wouldn't even know it. In his book, Unclean, Unclean, L.S. Huizenga provides some excellent insight into this tragic disease. I'd like to read this for you. And I quote, the disease generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color and it gets to be thick, glossy and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. 
The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch and deep furrows between the swellings so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger, one can also feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can now not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth probably due to the odor, end quote. Now, according to the Mosaic law, God gave very specific regulations and precautions about leprosy. You can read about it, for example, in Leviticus 13. At the first sign of a skin problem, if you lived in that day, you would be required to go to the priest for an examination. And the priest would then isolate you or quarantine you for seven days. And if after that seven days, you would go back to the priest. And if the symptoms had worsened, you would be put in quarantine for seven more days. And if you were no better after the end of that second set of seven days, you were pronounced unclean. And often it would be obvious that leprosy had struck the hair Many times would turn completely white and flesh would become raw and sometimes look like have boils upon it and scaly and swollen. And many of those people would be pronounced unclean right on the spot. When they were pronounced unclean, their their clothes had to be torn because the spread of the disease could be could occur through touching the clothing. Their heads had to be shaved and and uncovered so that um, people could see from uh, with a glance that they were leprous and their mouth had to be covered also to prevent the spread because it could be spread through the air. It was an airborne type of of bacteria. It could be spread through just inhaling the air where they were if you were around them close. And of course, they were required to shout wherever they went unclean, unclean. As a warning to others to stay clear. And they were isolated, required to live outside the camp. A very, very lonely existence. Sometimes they would be with other lepers. In fact, uh, the the Talmud tells us that uh, the Jews were forbidden to come within six feet of a leper. And if it was a windy day, you could only get within 150 feet. Beloved, leprosy is used in Scripture as a vivid illustration of sin. Gradually, and think about this, the warning system of the conscience fails to alert a man or a woman as to the consequences of their sinful choices. The ultimate end of their wicked ways. And insidiously at first, sin gradually infects the whole person. And, and the ugliness of, of sin in, imperceptibly begins to manifest itself in the character, in the conduct of its victim. 
The contamination of sin over time grows stronger and stronger as an individual sinner's resistance to it grows weaker and weaker. Little by little, isolation begins to occur. There is an alienation from God that grows with each passing day. And even earthly relationships, once considered close and even sweet, gradually feel the horrible pains of separation, loneliness and despair. Often the quarantine of separation and unforgiveness and, and the, the, the sin of bitterness gradually separates old friends. The isolation of divorce separates husbands from wives and wives from husbands. And the pain of sin gradually separates the love of a child for a parent and vice versa. And if you think about it, eventually the gross disfigurement of life dominating sin is so hideous and it is so nauseating to others that the sinner can only find friendship in the comfort of the leper colonies of bars Houses of prostitution, gambling casinos, places where drugs are given, places where the dregs of humanity congregate to somehow ease the gnawing pain of being at war with God, the enmity with God that results from sin. They try to find some place where they can enjoy the fleeting pleasures of life before the flames of hell engulf them. And in their living hell, corrupted, disfigured, lonely, angry, they stubbornly refuse to dip themselves like Naaman in the river of humble repentance and forever, therefore, forfeit the divine cleansing that the Lord would give them and the imputed righteousness and cleansing and purity of Christ. But notice what happened to this poor leper. That came to Jesus on that day. I want to point out three things in particular. First of all, we see that he sought the Lord in desperation. Notice what it says in verse two. And behold, a leper came to him. He came to him. He recognized the desperateness of his condition. It was obvious to him and to everyone around him. And as a constant reminder, he had to holler out, unclean, unclean. Beloved, think of this. Unlike the sinner's conscience that is gradually silenced by habitual sin, the leper is always reminded of his malady by having to shout it out. Imagine for a moment if every unsaved sinner bore every secret sin as a tumor on his body. Imagine if every wicked thought became a putrefying boil for all to see. Imagine if every proud, self-centered, rebellious attitude within the heart manifested itself as yet another scale. If every idol of the heart that blasphemes God emitted some obnoxious odor. Imagine if everyone could see the hideous disfigurement of a soul lost in sin. If everyone could see the unregenerate soul that is so cleverly concealed behind the proud flesh of humanity, we would all be horrified, wouldn't we? 
And perhaps even one look in the mirror would send the, the least sinner running to the Savior for cleansing. By the way, isn't it wonderful to know that by contrast and by the grace and the mercy of God, not by our own efforts, that when God sees us, He doesn't see us with such hideousness. He sees us as clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if people were to be able to see who we really are, even though we haven't fully manifested our glory, we're still incarcerated in our unredeemed humanness. But if they could really see the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus, they wouldn't be horrified in fear necessarily. They'd be horrified with reverent awe to see such glory, the glory of Christ. Well, this man had obviously already seen his sin. He knew Jesus as Lord, and now he saw his physical need as well. It's interesting, there was no need for this man to be begged or prodded or emotionally manipulated by someone else to come to Jesus or to somehow accept Jesus. His only thought was, I'm sure, will Jesus accept me? Will, will Jesus heal me? You know, nothing in life was more important to this man than addressing his need for cleansing. What a picture, dear friends, of sin, of repentance and salvation. Think of it. Here was a man willing to risk his very life to come to Jesus. Despite the multitudes that we see that were around Jesus, that it would have undoubtedly hurled not only insults, but stones at this man. By the way, the proud Jews not only feared the contamination of the leper, but they also saw them as some despicable sinner that God was judging as some wicked person. What a graphic illustration of one entering the narrow gate, traveling the narrow road to follow Jesus, come what may, what we've studied in the verses previous to this in chapter 7. Here we have a man with, with, with no fear. There, 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 was, there, there was no sense of shame. He obviously knew that that he could come boldly to the lover of his soul and, and, and seek help in his time of need. And what an electric moment it must have been as I, as I think about that scene. The, the, the crowd, I'm sure, began to back away in anger. They felt threatened. Get, get that, that filthy leper away from us. And the proud scribes and Pharisees must have looked on with disgust. Oh, what a hideous sight. This loathsome creature coming near us. Get away. And then to think that he's calling this Jesus Lord blasphemy. I wonder what Jesus will do. Don't you know they ask that? I, I, I wonder if he will defile himself by touching that which is unclean and violating the law. Well, their worst nightmare was about to be realized. Not only did this dear man come to Jesus desperate in his condition, but secondly, he sought the Lord in faith, believing. Notice in verse 2, he says, Lord, if you were willing, you can make me clean. He addressed him as Lord, not, not as great rabbi, a great, great prophet, sir, no, Lord, my, my sovereign ruler and, and king, you, you have the power. I have utmost confidence in your deity and your omnipotence. You are my creator and my God. 
Regardless of his hideous disease on the outside, his heart was pure on the inside because of his faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So he comes to him first in desperation. Secondly, we see in faith believing. But thirdly, he sought the Lord in utter humility. Notice in verse 2 it says that he bowed down. It could literally be translated that he, he worshipped by falling on his face at the feet of Jesus. It literally means to prostrate oneself. It's often, by the way, this term is often translated worship. No sense of self-confidence here. No, no arrogant pride. No sense of, well, here I am. What have you got for me, Jesus? Look what you've done to me. What type of God are you? I deserve better than this. Show me what you have to offer and I will exercise my will and I'll decide whether or not I want to accept what you have to offer. No, none of that. No, no self-centeredness. No self-righteousness. No demanding tone in his voice. And certainly no name it and claim it attitude that we see today in so many circles. None of this blab it and grab it stuff. Which, by the way, are the blasphemous buzzwords of those who erroneously believe that somehow God exists for them rather than the truth that somehow or the reality and the truth that, that, that we exist for him. That somehow, as some believe, the creator can be manipulated and cajoled, cajoled by the creature to become obligated to perform some personal miracle. None of that. Oh, dear friends, the, the, the truly meek and, and, and the lowly, the truly regenerate never approach Jesus in such a way. But they will only approach him in, in humble submission and reverence. And notice that remarkable phrase, Lord, if you are willing, you can heal me. You see, he knew that Jesus was able, but he also knew that Jesus was sovereign. He realized Jesus was not obligated to heal him. He knew that there was nothing worthy in himself that would require Jesus to do anything for him. The thought had to have been just the opposite. His thought was much more, you know, if, if God chooses to cleanse me, so be it. But if he chooses not to, that is what I deserve because he is sovereign and he knows what is best. He is holy and he is just. And whatever cross he asks me to bear, I will bear it for his glory. Because I know someday this earthly dwelling will pass away and I will have that glorified body. So I will be content in whatever condition he chooses for me. Oh, dear friends, I, I, I hope you see this. This is exactly what Jesus meant back in, in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning the spiritually destitute. Those that come to him with, 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 with no sense of, of spiritual pride. I, Lord, I don't have anything to offer. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew 5, 4, he said, blessed are those who mourn, literally mourn over their sinfulness. For they shall be comforted. Friends, please hear this. A man is never closer to mercy than when he is quite sure he does not deserve it. A man is never more assured of grace than when he knows that his only recourse is to cry out for it. 
What a picture of a sinner and of saving grace. First, a sinner must come in desperate haste, in utter anguish over his sinful state, and all alone, regardless of the cost, regardless of the rejection. Because of the desperate of his need, he comes for cleansing of sin. And why? Because the Holy Spirit has opened his eyes and he sees the wretchedness and the disfigurement of his condition. And then when he comes, he in desperation, he also comes, as this man did for physical healing. He comes in faith, believing sovereign Savior and Lord, you alone can cleanse me, not my works, not anyone else. And they would be able to quote that wonderful passage in Isaiah Wash me and make me clean. Though my sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. So when a sinner comes to Christ, he comes in desperation. He comes in faith believing. And he must also come in utter humility. Utterly bereft of pride and self-righteousness. Seeking the undeserved mercy and grace of the compassionate Savior. Beloved, This is the stuff of saving grace. And notice the response of the Savior to his desperation, to his faith, to his humility in verse three. And he stretched out his hand and touched him. Literally, the grammar would indicate that he took hold of him. You know, Jesus could have healed with a word, couldn't he? But he knew, knew that the man needed more than that. Beloved, can't you, can't you put yourself in the position there of that dear leper? Can you imagine what it must be like to live who knows how many years in isolation? No one to touch you, to shake your hand, to give you a hug. And even if they could, you couldn't really feel it. But Jesus did the unthinkable. He, he, he touched him. And whenever I think of Jesus touching him, I have to think, my, how the Lord loves to lavish his grace upon us. Years of isolation, years of being an outcast, despised and rejected. Now, what a picture of reconciliation with God himself. God reaches out and embraces him. And isn't it interesting, too, he was healed instantly so that all of the feeling of the divine touch could be experienced by this dear leper. He said, yes, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Well, the crowd must have gasped as they stood far back. Jesus is now contaminated, they must have said. He's certainly ceremonially unclean, the scribes and Pharisees would have said. Others might have thought, well, I wonder if, 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 if this ridiculous act of touching that filthy leper would now eliminate my opportunity to approach him because I don't know if I want to get near this Jesus. But it's interesting. Jesus desiring to follow the letter of the law. And not wanting to be prematurely exalted, and certainly exalted for the wrong reasons, until he made his way to Jerusalem. And wishing to avoid any further sensationalism. No no, no desire here to whip the crowd up into some physical healing frenzy. 
when it was their hearts that he was really wanting to heal, not their bodies. Look, look what he tells the leper. In verse four, Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Well, you might say, well, why would, why would Jesus say don't tell anyone? I mean, there's people all around. There's the multitudes there. Surely they saw. Well, yeah, they did. But there's some distance away. Remind, let me remind you. They're unsure of what just happened. He wants him to fulfill the requirements of the Mosaic law, which would mean that if you were healed of this disease, if there was uh, if, if it was abated somehow and you thought you were over it, you would have to go to the priests once again for a physical examination and let them be the ones. Jesus is saying, let them be the ones to examine you. Let them be the ones to declare you clean let them be the ones to be confronted with the reality that the Messiah, Jesus, has in fact healed this man. See, Jesus had a lot of other reasons for sending this man to be obedient in this way. By the way, this process is fascinating, found in, Luke, in Leviticus 14. There was a ceremonial cleansing required that was absolutely filled with Profound symbolism. I'll not take time to give you all of it, but let me tell you what you had to do and what this man had to do. The law required, God required, that you take two birds and that you kill one of them over running water. Which, by the way, is very important. Water is always a symbol of a cleansing that has already occurred. There's no cleansing in the water. It is a symbol of cleansing that has already occurred. And then you were to take the as, as you kill one of the birds over the running water, you then would take the live bird along with cedar wood, a scarlet string and some hyssop. And you would take all of that and dip it in the blood of the slain bird seven times as a symbol of purification. And then the live bird would be released, symbolizing the leper's freedom from the disease and from the quarantine. And then all of his clothes had to be washed. All of his hair had to be shaved off so there was no contaminant left. And then it's interesting, he would still have to remain outside of his tent for seven days. And what you see as you study in the Old Testament there had to be a gradual reentry back into the fellowship of the people. And beloved, this is such a marvelous picture here. It graphically pictures the premium God places upon holiness in the camp. In the camp of the redeemed. And the profound need for a, for a thorough cleansing of sin pictured by leprosy. And a gradual reentry, a very careful reentry back into the fellowship. Oh, what power, what love, what mercy, what grace, what restoration of fellowship we see in this wonderful story. Leprous sinner, if you're here today within the sound of my voice, regardless of your sin, there is cleansing in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. But you must come to him in utter desperation, seeing the heinousness of your sinful condition. You must come to him in faith believing. You must come to him in humble obedience and cry out for His mercy and His grace. And oh, Christian, 
Those of us who, like this leper, have faith in Christ, may I encourage you in your time of need, whatever it is, never stop seeking the compassionate Savior. He is there to help us in our time of need. Sometimes it's His will to do miraculous things. Other times the miraculous thing that He will do is preserve you in the midst of your suffering so that He can be exalted and ultimately you can be blessed. Well, that's the first healing. We will look at the others beginning next week. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank You for this marvelous passage of Scripture that speaks to our hearts. Lord, may we take these truths and meditate upon them. And may they find lodging within our hearts and bear much fruit. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of your saving grace, oh Lord, bring conviction to their hearts. And may they come running to the Savior and today be cleansed. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.